The following message titled, The Power of the Gospel in Multi-Ethnic Congregational Worship was given by H.B. Charles Jr. at the Worship God 15 Triune Conference in Louisville, Kentucky. For more information and resources from the conference, visit www.worshipgodconference.com. I want to talk about the intersection between the Trinity and our unity and worship from Ephesians chapter 4. Let me breathe the word of prayer and then I want you to hear the reading of God's word. And after we've prayed and read, we'll plunge in to see what God will say to us today right out of what he has already said to us in his word. Would you indulge me? It is the custom where I serve for us to stand for the reading of the word of God, if you don't mind. Father, we thank you and praise you for another opportunity to sit under the teaching of your word, and we pray that you would open our understanding that we may comprehend the scriptures. Help us to lay aside all malice, deceit, envy, hypocrisy, and slander so that as newborn infants we may crave the pure spiritual milk of your word and grow thereby, having tasted of your goodness. I pray afresh for physical strength and spiritual energy to speak your word with faithfulness, clarity, authority, passion, wisdom, humility, and freedom. And may the name of the Lord Jesus be exalted as the word is proclaimed, we pray. Amen. Ephesians chapter 4 Of course, the extended passage is verses 1 through 16, but I would point our attention for our time today at verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. We are one. As was mentioned in the introduction, Our pastor, the Shiloh Metropolitan Baptist Church in Jacksonville, Florida, downtown Jacksonville, yesterday, July 30th, actually marked seven years to the day since that church called me to be its pastor. For the past several years, we have been prayerfully desiring that God would let us plant a local church in another part of our city. We finally targeted an area southwest of us downtown called Orange Park. In the process, we went to meet with the Jacksonville Baptist Association for advice, and that meeting led to another meeting with the leadership of the Ridgewood Baptist Church in Orange Park. The Ridgewood Baptist Church was losing its facilities. 
and they discuss with us the possibilities of turning over the facilities to us. As we kept talking, however, the conversation shifted from land acquisition to congregational merger. For the record, Shiloh is a predominantly black congregation. Ridgewood is a predominantly white congregation. And we were having these discussions while racial tensions were boiling over in America in the aftermath of the deaths of Mike Brown in Ferguson and Eric Gardner in New York at the hands of police. But as we talked, as we prayed, as we surrendered to the leadership of the Lord, both churches agreed to take a step of faith together to merge, becoming one church in two locations, sustaining both of those campuses downtown in Orange Park. And the whole entire latter part of last year was spent preparing the congregations to become one body. We, having the racial factors, had obvious challenges, but I contend that bigger than racial challenges were challenges like music styles, <laughs> special programs, and ministerial turf. On more than one occasion, I said that bigger than the issues of race was just the big challenge of marrying together two 100-year-old congregations. Praise God, I am part of a church with leaders who concluded that the way to lead the church forward was to preach the word. And we began to discuss in a meeting what I should be preaching over this process of transition. And in the midst of it, one of the leaders from Ridgewood simply asked, HB, what have you been preaching? And I had been working my way through the book of Ephesians and told them where I was in the letter. And the consensus immediately became, why don't you just keep preaching Ephesians? So that we can understand the gospel and how the gospel unites us as a church. And during this process, of transition for both congregations, God did remarkable things. As we were reminded again and again how God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit works through the gospel to make us one in a way that transcends any differences that may divide us. One such passage is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. There are two key passages in the New Testament about Christian unity. The intercessory prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17 and the practical exhortations of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Ephesians chapter 4 marks a transition in this letter from the doctrinal to the more practical section of the letter. Chapters 1 
through 3 are about the believer's wealth in Christ. Chapters 4 through 6 are about the believer's walk in Christ. Chapter 4, verse 1 of Ephesians says, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have received. This calling is described in chapters and explained in chapters 1 through 3, where we see the sovereign and glorious and transforming grace of God that saves us through Jesus Christ. Now in chapter 4, verse 1, in the succeeding passages, Paul will say, walk worthy of this calling. What does it mean for Christians to walk worthy? He explains in verses 2 and 3, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love and eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice those two verses tell us that there are things we must do to maintain our unity. There are exhortations here to gentleness, humility, to forbearance, to patience, to love, to peace, but Paul is clear that there are things we must do so that we don't mess up the unity. But there's nothing we do that creates unity. We are united in and through and by God, the Holy Spirit. It is, as the end of verse 3 says, the unity of the Spirit. What, what is this unity of the Spirit? Paul explains in verses 4 through 6. There is one body, one spirit, one hope that belongs to the calling to which you have been called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and in all and through all. John chapter 17, verses 20 and 21, Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is called by many <laughs> the unanswered prayer of Jesus. And there are those who think that we have to work hard in our generation so that the prayer of Jesus will finally be answered. But I, I stand to tell you, Jesus has no unanswered prayers. In John chapter 11, verse 42, Jesus says to the Father at the graveside of Lazarus, you always hear me. God the Father always answers the prayers of God the Son, and the Father has answered the prayer of the Son that all who believe in him may be one. 
Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6 is the proof. Here, Paul presents the grounds, the source, the basis of Christian unity, and it is spiritual unity, not organizational unity. It is spiritual unity, not congregational unity. Spiritual unity, not not, uh, unity around music styles or ministry programs or human personalities. It is unity of the Spirit. These verses list seven ways Christians are one. And the sevenfold basis of Christian unity here is organically connected to the Trinity. Verse 4 lists the ways the Holy Spirit makes us one. Verse 5 lists the ways the Lord Jesus Christ makes us one. And verse 6 lists the ways that God the Father makes us one. And in these three verses, Paul teaches us that the unity of the church is securely rooted in the unity of the Godhead. John R.W. Stock comments here, you can no more multiply churches than you can multiply gods. Is there only one God? Then he has only one church. Is the unity of God inviolable? Then so is the unity of the church. The unity of the church is as indestructible as the unity of God himself. It is no more possible to split the church than it is possible to split the Godhead. We are one. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 4 through 6 makes it clear we are one in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. First of all, it tells us we are one in God the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Here are three ways God the Holy Spirit makes us one. First, one body. The New Testament does not so much define the nature of the church as it describes it with various word pictures. But the primary metaphor for the church in the New Testament is that of a body. Christ is the head of the church. The church is the body of Christ. To be a Christian is to be under the authority of the head and in fellowship with the body. Christ does not have out-of-body experiences. Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5 says, For as in one body we have many members, and the many members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. 
We are one body in Christ. It consists of all of the redeemed from the day of Pentecost until the day where Jesus Christ returns. There are no separate bodies for different races and cultures and statuses and backgrounds and tastes and references. There is no white body and black body or rich body and poor body or young body and old body. We are one body in Christ. There are many Christians, local congregations, unique denominations, but if we are in fact Christians, we are all one body in Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 27 says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Not only is there one body, verse 4 says there is one spirit. I am a person. I live in this body and I am the only one, that is there's only one me that lives in this body. This is true of every human being, and it is also true of the church of Jesus Christ. We are one body, and that one body is animated by one spirit. Or can't use rightly comments, the Holy Spirit creates, fills, coordinates, orchestrates, and empowers the body of Christ. There are two essential questions to ask and answer about the person and work of the Holy Spirit in this regard. Who is the Holy Spirit is always the first question. There are two answers to that question. The Holy Spirit is a person and the Holy Spirit is God. Second like question, where is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit, because he is God, is everywhere. But also the Holy Spirit lives in those who have been bought by the blood of the Lamb. He lives in those who are in Christ. Romans chapter 8 verse 9 says that if anyone does not have the Spirit, he does not belong to Christ. So to ask a person if he or she has the Spirit is to ask that person, are you saved? If you do not have the Spirit, you do not belong to Christ. But the moment a person repents of his or her sin and runs to the cross and trusts in the blood and righteousness of Jesus from, for salvation from the wrath of God that is to come, immediately and completely and permanently, God, the Holy Spirit, takes up residence in our hearts. Every Christian is a beneficiary of the indwelling presence of the life-giver king, and that makes us one in a way that transcends whatever differences we may have. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 13 says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, 
are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. We are one body in one spirit. We are the body of Christ. Every believer is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. The practical implication of this, friends, is this. Every sin against the body is a sin against the spirit. This is why, verse 3, we must be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. One more thing in verse 4. We have one hope. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. This parenthetical clause that closes the verse speaks of the future hope to which every Christian has been divinely called. Go back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, where Paul prays for the saints that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened and that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What is this hope? Next phrase, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? We have been called to one hope. It it is the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Our inheritance in Christ is about what we will receive, but it is even more so about what we shall become. Yet we are to live in light of this hope now, this hope to which we have been called. This is why Paul says in Chapter 4, verse 1, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This one hope of our calling makes us one in Christ. There may be division when we look back. There may be division when we look around, but Paul seems to say here, there is unity when we look ahead. We may not all agree on the details of eschatology, but all true believers share the hope of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. CJ referred to 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 last night. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Then verse 2 goes on to say, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. 
because we shall see him just as he is. We are one in God the Holy Spirit. But we are also one in God the Son. That's verse 5. Verse 4 lists three truths that make us one in God the Holy Spirit. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Now verse 5 lists three truths that makes us one in God the Son. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. This is the golden verse of the ecumenical movement. When Christians of different denominations and beliefs seek common ground to work together, they claim one Lord, one faith, one baptism. This is the irreducible basis of Christian unity, but this is no watered-down agreement. Here are three big truths that make us one in God the Son. There is one Lord. The one Lord is Jesus Christ. The first creed of the Christian church is this, Jesus is Lord. Romans 10 verse 9 says, If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You cannot be saved without confessing Jesus as Lord. Romans 10, verses 12 and 13 says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Friends, you do know Scripture does not give us the option of accepting Jesus as Savior and rejecting him as Lord. The one who saves is Lord, and you don't get a vote on that. Paul speaks of our oneness here in Christ in terms of one Lord, not one Savior. Believers confess Jesus as Lord in salvation. Unbelievers, however, will confess him as Lord in judgment. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and has given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is not universal salvation. This is sovereign lordship. Christians are one in confessing and submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. With his own blood, he has bought her, and for her life he died. Amen. There is one Lord, and there is one faith. 
The New Testament speaks of faith both subjectively and objectively. Many instances refer to the subjective experience of faith. In Acts 16 and 31, for instance, Paul and Silas says to the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. This, this is how faith is often spoken of in the New Testament. Salvation requires personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But there are also places in the New Testament where faith refers to objective truth, not subjective experience. It's, the, it's about the content of the faith that we believe. For instance, Jude 3 where Jude says, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This is a body of truth that represents biblical and historic Christian faith. Acts chapter two, verse 42 calls it the apostles teaching or the apostles doctrine. And it is one. There are Christians who de-emphasize theology because they claim doctrine divides. But togetherness devoid of truth is appeasement, not unity. J.C. Ryle rightly said, unity is mighty, but it is worthless if it is purchased at the cost of truth. Christian unity is built upon the truth, not without the truth. Sure, there are points of doctrine where Christians disagree, but these important issues are in-house debates within the pale of orthodoxy. Yet there are some points of doctrine upon which there can be no disagreement. This is what verse 5 means when it says one faith. It means either you believe these things or you are not a Christian. We are made one because of one faith. Saving faith confesses I believe in God. Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried, descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, from there. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Do you believe that? I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic universal that is church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sin, the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Amen. And it is by one faith that we are one. Thirdly, in verse 5, there's one baptism. The New Testament speaks of baptism two ways. There is what is called spirit baptism. It is a supernatural, invisible, non-experiential work of the Holy Spirit to join us into the body of Christ. Again, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13 says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jew." 
Greek, slave, or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. There was also water baptism. It is the visible symbol of spirit baptism. Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus says, Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is not a human tradition. You can reject at your discretion. The Lord Jesus commands his disciples to be marked by water immersion in the triune name of the living God. This public act of personal confession identifies the believer with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It also identifies the believer with the church of Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 and 28 says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. We are one. In God the Holy Spirit. We are one in God the Son, and we are one in God the Father. Verse 6 says, There is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This sixth verse begins with an affirmation of monotheism. There is only one true and living God. The oneness of God is the first principle of Jewish theology. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It is also the first principle of Christian theology. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. For there is only one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for us all. Yet the Lord Jesus Christ reveals this one God to exist in three co-existent, co-equal, and co-eternal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I love that when I typed that sentence, my word processor uh, flashed it as a failure of number agreement. <laughs> this triunity of God is assumed in this text, as verse 4 presents our oneness in God the Holy Spirit, verse 5, our oneness in God the Son, and now verse 6, our oneness in God the Father. Yet we do not worship three gods. There is only one God. And Paul says this God is our Father. He's our father by regeneration. 
John chapter 1, verse 12, verse 13, 12 and 13 of John 1 says, But to all who did receive him, Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. God is our Father through regeneration, new birth. He is also our Father, as we saw wonderfully last night, through adoption. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. But in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we may receive the adoption as sons. God relates to the world of unbelievers as creator and ultimately as judge. But God is our father in heaven to all those who are in Christ Jesus, to all those who run to the cross and turn themselves in and trust in the blood and righteousness of Jesus for salvation. Verse 6 tells us what it means for this one God to be Father of all. I like this. He lists the last basis of a Christian unity One God and Father of all, and the rest of the verse is about this one God and Father. He says there are three truths about this one God and Father you need to know. First of all, God the Father is over all. The fact that God is over all declares his sovereign authority over all creation. Psalm 103 verse 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Listen, it ultimately, it ultimately does not matter what the Supreme Court decides. It ultimately does not matter what Congress legislates. It ultimately does not matter who becomes the next president. God has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Paul mentions it here to say that this truth of the exhaustive sovereignty of God unites the church in faith and hope and love. In Acts chapter 12, Herod arrests Peter with plans to execute him after Passover. The church doesn't have a lobby system to make an appeal. They don't have money to pay his bail. They don't have political clout. How in the world can these saints help Peter? Very easy. They have a God who is over all. 
So they don't go to Herod to make an appeal. <laughs> they go to Mary's house for a prayer meeting. <laughs> and while they were praying to the God and Father who is above all, God sent an angel to set Peter free from prison. Cause the iron gate of the city to open on its own accord. And Peter was knocking on the door of Mary's house before the prayer meeting for him was over. Wait a minute. It gets better than that. Because at the end of that chapter, Herod, the same Herod that put Peter in jail, is eaten alive by worms as he sat on his throne because he failed to give glory to God. Let the culture do what the culture is going to do. May we stand united in faith in a God and Father who is above all. Proverbs 21, verse 30 says, No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. But not only is this God and Father above all, this God and Father is through all. <laughs> the fact that God is through all denies the foolish notion that God is some cosmic watchmaker who created the world and set it to run on its own devices without his involvement. The progression of verse 6 says that the God of exhaustive sovereignty is also the God of pervasive providence. He is not just above all, but he works through it all. I thought I'd have a witness there. I'm glad I brought my own just in case. <laughs> Joseph was thrown in a pit by his brothers, sold into slavery, lied on by his master's wife, falsely accused and thrown into prison forgotten by those whom he helped. But all of this was just the means through which God got him to the palace. And remember after he is exalted to leadership in Egypt, his brothers come in fear that his, he would use his new position as an opportunity to exact vengeance upon them for the wrong they had done to him. And do you remember what Joseph said to them? Genesis chapter 50 verses 19 and 20. Do not fear. You have no reason to be afraid of me for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good 
to bring it to pass as it is to this very day that many lives would be kept alive as they are. This is the God we serve. What God did for Joseph is what God will do and does for all who are in Christ Jesus. It's not just a God that is above all. He is the God who works through it all. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And finally, God the Father is not only above all and through all, he is also in all. Notice how this description of the Father begins with transcendence. He is over all and then moves to eminence. He is in all. God is infinitely above us and beyond us, but God is no distant deity who is unmoved or untouched or uncaring. God lives in us. We are one because every Christian enjoys the indwelling presence of the life-giver King. 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 through 15 says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. What a thought. We are one because God, the Holy Spirit, lives in us. God, the Son, lives in us. God, the Father, lives within us. How then should we respond to such a great truth? Let me put it in reverse and go back to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that you ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him and to him alone be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever. And ever. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, 
and Holy Ghost. Amen. Father, we thank you and praise you We bless you that you have chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we may be holy and blameless before you. You have sent your Son, the Beloved One, to be our Redeemer, who lived the righteous life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died, suffering your wrath on our behalf. And in him, you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You've called us, you've left us here. You woke us up this morning. You've brought us to this meeting so that all the more you would help us to walk this out in a way that would bring you glory. Thank you for the reminder of this passage that we cannot walk worthy if we do not walk together. And as we worship you and as we serve your people and as we witness to the world, may we do so not trying to muster up unity by our own feeble efforts that accomplish nothing, but by standing on the truth of what you have already accomplished and the ways that you, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have made us one. You've made us one body. You've given us one spirit. You have called us to one hope. We serve one Lord. We believe and practice one faith. We have received one baptism. And we are under the care of one God and Father who is above all and through all and in us all. Help us to walk in that to your glory. Amen.